This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. The following program includes themes of suicide and sexual abuse. Listener discretion is advised. What is the world like today for the people who are frequently shocked, challenged and been at the forefront of changes that many see as outrageous? Are the rainbow people still changing their world for the better? I'm Malcolm Angus. Welcome to Outrageous, the program that investigates, supports and advocates for the rainbow people of New Zealand. Good day, listeners. Once again to the Outrageous program on OAR 105.4 FM and this is Malcolm Angus, your host today. I was hoping to have a guest uh, on the show who unfortunately seems to have... um, disappeared for the moment so I'm on my own and um, this particular person may turn up I hope she does I did in one of my last recordings talk to you about the Royal Commission that is going on in New Zealand with regard to the abuse of children in faith-based institutions and I wanted to um, come back to that topic because I did say that I was planning to meet with um, the Anglican Bishop of Dunedin and uh, his education manager for the diocese and um, I was not certain as to how I would be received and the message I was taking to that meeting was to ask them if they would recognize the harm that was done to children through institutionalized abuse. And that harm was so severe that for many, they didn't survive the wounds of their abuse. This I found um, one of the great sadnesses of the Royal Commission in Australia where um, there was a huge amount of media interest in that commission and in fact every day there were headlines um, coming out of that particular event and what most grabbed my attention was that not one of the organisations fronting the commission ever noted that people had died from the wounds of their abuse. They were quite, well, not happy, unhappy. They were unhappy to talk about the victims who were also designated survivors, which, of course, uh, implies that they were not survivors as well. There were those who did not survive the abuse. And these people um, lived their lives as well as they possibly could within the damage to their spirit, um, their self-identity, their ability to have um, meaningful relations as they grew up and became young adults. And it was during that period that so many people either died by suicide or 
died because of their coping behaviours. And I was distressed and angry that in Australia none of these people were being recognised. And so um, I decided that something had to be done. And that something was to um, plead with those institutions to hold a memorial service across Australia to recognise these forgotten people who, in my mind, were as brave as you could possibly be to try and live on with that damage and to struggle on in their lives, trying to have meaningful relationships. But in the end, it all became too hard. Um, And so I decided I would try, after three and a half years in New Zealand, to see what sort of reaction I would get here. And I phoned the Anglican Diocese and spoke to a very warm and thoughtful man who was in charge of the education, and he said, yes, I will arrange a meeting with Bishop Stephen. And he did, and we had this meeting. And I came away after two hours with a certain promise that the Anglican diocese in Dunedin would be holding a memorial service and they would look at the documents that I gave them uh, which were used in the first memorial service in Australia and they would also contact various uh, or people that had been involved in the second memorial service in the Brisbane Anglican Cathedral. So I have to say that um, I was heartened and cried, I wept, because they seemed to be so different, these men, to the ones that I had approached in Australia, except for the Rector, who eventually, when I found him and said, what have you done about those who did not survive the abuse, said, I'm ashamed I haven't thought about it. And I found in the two men I met here in Dunedin an equal sense of shame, an equal sense of the need to recognise the major oversight and to do something about it. So I'm just letting you know that within New Zealand there has been what I see as an extraordinary response. I did phone the um, Catholic Cardinal in Wellington, the um, highest-ranking church official of the Catholic Church in New Zealand, um, and had a... I think, a 20-minute talk with him over the telephone. His response was um, different. It wasn't dismissive, but nor was it enthusiastic. And his parting words to me were, were that he would take the idea to a committee that is looking at how they can do more for those who were abused. He also acknowledged, I think, that they were only focused on the survivors of abuse. 
they had not been focused on the people who died from the wounds of their abuse. I haven't heard back from him, and uh, because I, I and I did say, well, if you will not be a standard bearer for this um, idea, then who will? So I am hoping he will be the standard bearer, and that I will get good news from Wellington. But that was um, a few weeks ago now. So I have taken an interest in the Royal Commission here now, and I have looked at some of the recorded um, examination, if you like, of these faith-based institutions that um, were called to account. And I have to say that um, it didn't seem terribly... um, urgent to me for anyone to be doing anything much about it here, not like it was in Australia. Now, that may be actually happening now because, as I understand it, the Commission is still doing its work and there are people working behind the scenes um, who are far more forensic in what they are doing and they are meeting with survivors, victims who have survived and are getting their stories, and I am sure that there will be more coming out of those interviews, those meetings. But what I saw um, that was live-streamed and then became um, history, if you like, did not enthuse me very much in terms of the um, desire to get the organizations to actually respond in meaningful ways as i said that may still be coming and it's difficult to tell Uh, later um, in my broadcasts i will be talking to somebody who is now currently working with male survivors of abuse an amazing organization that was established um, because of these horrific stories that were coming out from the past and they were coming out from the past because people who had kept this abuse secret not the perpetrators the victims and you may wonder why do people keep it secret and let me tell you because a there is a great deal of shame associated with being abused as a child because it is extremely confusing for a child as to what is happening. And for many children, they see themselves as somehow causing the abuse and therefore they don't speak up, even though they feel that something terrible has happened. And it isn't until the survivors get to a certain age and they hear the stories of other survivors through the news, through reading, through the internet, that they realise that they are not alone in this and that their thinking process has, has been so warped by the predators, by the people who abused them, that they were not actually seeing the truth in that they were not the cause of it, they were not the people who encouraged these adults to behave in that way. It was not 
the victim's fault. It was done by adult people in a planned, predatory manner, almost of hunting. And it is awfully hard for people to see themselves as people who should have no shame about this event. But it is not something that uh, many talk to their parents about and their parents die without knowing. It's not something they talk to their families about and their families die without them knowing. These sort of discussions about sexual abuse, physical abuse, psychological abuse are mainly heard by strangers, strangers who may be psychiatrists, psychologists, doctors, counsellors. Those are the people that in the end hear these stories because these stories are not something you talk about around the barbecue. They are not something that you raise at the dinner table. And if you have had the miracle of going on to a relationship and creating children, then even the children will not be certain as to how they should respond to these terrible stories. It's almost impossible to say the right words to somebody who has been a victim of abuse as a child. And this is one of the major problems of talking about it because you know that it silences people. They have no ability to respond except perhaps to give you a hug, to tell them that they love you, and to make sure that you know it's okay that you've told them. That seems to me to be all that can be done by close friends and family. Tell the survivor that it's okay and that you're glad that you've been told. Tell the survivor that you love them and tell the survivor that they have nothing to be ashamed of and that if they want to talk about it more that you would always be a willing listener. My own experience of this and the fact that um, in the past money was given out almost like an insurance policy depending on the quality and quantity of the abuse you suffered um, was that money never really did any healing and in many cases the money that was paid out caused further problems especially if it was paid out in bulk because a bulk payout is sometimes the largest amount of money an individual has ever received in their life and managing that money in a way that causes no further harm to them is sometimes difficult, is sometimes impossible. I refused any financial compensation because I said it would not heal me. Spend it on those who are poor, those who are damaged, those that can 
use the money in some way that it will help heal them and that doesn't necessarily mean other victims of abuse. But for me it was the acknowledgement by the institution and the behaviours that they changed and the actions they took that mattered. Telling the story was part of the healing. Being allowed to tell the story was part of the healing. Being allowed to explain what it had done to you was part of the healing, an important part, a massive part. And this is where I think that anyone who comes across a person in their work, in their life, in their family, who suddenly blurts out or finds a reason to say, I too was abused as a child, should be loved, heard, hugged and told that they're okay and it's okay to talk about it and to recognise that that about is all you can do as a friend, as a family member and to make sure that that person is getting as much mental help, mental health help as is possible and is appropriate. That's my life's experience and the problem is that you don't really want to keep repeating the story to somebody else. Once you've told the story, you hope that something has healed inside you, that the anchor that has tied you to the past has shifted a little. Not that the rope that ties you to the anchor has broken, but that something has moved so that you are no longer dragged back into the depths of that abuse. That's my experience of it, and every one of us who is abused, male or female, and don't forget that a lot of young girls were abused as well, experiences it differently and takes on the abuse in different ways. But it does seem consistent that being abused makes you feel ashamed and it makes you struggle into adulthood without truly knowing who you are, what you are, why you are. The entry into puberty is a very risky time and if you're abused during that period as well, then the damage can be even worse than just a single abuse incident with a, a young child. It doesn't necessarily have to be even worse. But what I've read and what I've heard and the um, psychology that I've studied on it does seem to implicate that uh, men who abuse adolescent children are doing far more damage but I'm not the expert on that and you may find that I'm or you may believe I'm totally wrong and I'm quite happy to say I'm totally wrong. My own abuse 
went from the age of seven right through to the age of 18, when you would have thought that it was no longer possible for anyone to abuse. But I was a naive 18-year-old. I was on my own as an 18-year-old in a new country. I had no family and I had no support. And uh, that had been really my life anyway. And so uh, I was vulnerable once again without even realising my vulnerability. So I'm just saying to you, please, um, if you do know somebody, please give them love. If you are aware of any person who lost a child, lost a loved one, lost a relative, to... Um, a death caused by their coping behaviours or by suicide, then please find out about this memorial service that the Anglican Church is going to hold in Dunedin. Ring up the Anglican Church and say that you understand it's going to occur and that you'd like more information because I think this is a moment for healing for those who lost people to suicide and self-coping behaviours. And there are plenty who have lost people that way. Um, so I welcome what Stephen, Bishop Stephen is doing and I want to thank him and his education manager for what they're going to do and I just uh, suggest that you also find out more about it and if you want to contribute in some way then I'm sure that they would be love willing to listen to you and be willing to hear your story as well if you would like to add it because I believe that these are good men who will be doing the best they can in these circumstances. And these are difficult and terrible circumstances. The history is always going to be there. The taint is always going to be there. The blasphemous, blasphemous behaviour of the clergy that abused children is always going to be there. Whether or not the churches recover from it, I don't know. But my own feeling is they will never recover from it unless they admit how many people they killed. That's it today from Outrageous Aging. Um, please, if this has affected you and your mental health in any way, please seek help. Please talk to people. Um, there are the organisations out there that will listen to you. You only need to pick up the phone and call Lifeline. Um, but what I am doing is also encouraging you to see that there is some good happening to do with this terrible, terrible history of abuse. That's it from Malcolm Angus today. Thank you for listening to Outrageous on 105.4 FM. If this program has raised issues and made you worry about your or someone else's mental health, here are some ways to get help. The best person to talk to is your GP or local mental health provider. However, if you or someone else is in danger or endangering others, call 111. 
If you need to talk to someone, the following free helplines operate 24-7. need to talk? Call or text 1737. Lifeline 0800 543 354. Youthline 0800 This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air.